Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 481. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the Evergreen Network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. So this week's interview is with Penny Power. Penny, OBE, is an entrepreneur, co-founder with her husband, Thomas, of eAcademy, a mastermind host obsessed by community-led growth. And she's also the author of Business is Personal, Be the Leader of Your Life and Business. In this discussion, we explore Penny's life trajectory, her extraordinary ups and downs, building businesses and suffering massive setbacks, and how she cultivated resilience and persevered through them. We look at her book, the link between professional and personal spheres, as well as her work today developing the BIP100 community. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please consider the drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Penny Power, how lovely to have your smiling face on my show. I, I can see you, the, the, the listeners can't, um, but you and I have known each other, I, I would say for nearly a decade anyway, sometime. I really enjoyed meeting you the first time. You had some amazing stories and you've written this book, Business is Personal, that I absolutely devoured and adored. And, and it, it became so obvious that I needed to read it because for about 10 years of my life, I ran a company called The Mindset and the subtitle was Branding is Personal. So <laughs> with that as a, an entree, Penny, how would you like to describe yourself? Penny Power OBE. OBE, that's good, isn't it? The OBE might mean a lot to many people. Um, yeah, it was a real honor this year. Here we go, the Queen's 70 years. It was a, very, a real honor. And I was awarded it in 2014. Um, although Thomas says OBE stands for Online Business Executive. <laughs> rather than order of the British Empire but um how would I describe myself um gosh that's a really (laughs) diving straight in here okay how would I describe myself um paranoid would be a description (laughs) of me (laughs) we could delve into why that is um servant leader very much I'm through my life I've always been that um uh, I suppose people call me an entrepreneur I'd say I'm more a small business owner um, I'm somebody who loves to connect hearts in business. Um, I've built large companies. I've toppled over a couple of times, uh, very family oriented, um, 58 years old, uh, mother of three, married 32 years. There you go. It's a is that a good description or is that just I, facts and features? Uh, no, I, no, no. <laughs> it is the way you did yourself and you know yourself best, I will say, Penny. <laughs> so business is personal. It's a, it's a book that is very much a laying bare of yourself. And I really enjoyed it because it made me wake up, Penny. And, and one of the things that really touched me was this idea that while you talked about and helped others, it seemed like you talked about it as like a mask just talking about your problems wasn't actually fixing your problems. And that's something that I, it resonated with me that oftentimes people say, well, you know, talking helps, but it doesn't necessarily fix the problem. 
Yeah, gosh, that's an interesting insight into it. I mean, my motive for writing it is obviously writing is extremely cathartic. And when I wrote it, I thought this might be uh, goodbye penny power in the business world because I, you know, I decided right from the get-go when I started to write it, I was not going to put any mask on or conceal any part of me. And it might make people think, well, she's not really made for business, this poor woman who struggled and had all sorts of issues around um, her challenges, I suppose, as we all do. I think as after I'd written it, there was a great feeling of, well, this is my truth now, and anybody that comes towards me after this is going to be someone who I will like hanging out with. Um, and I don't think I've ever been particularly um, ego-driven to create some identity of me that's not me. But what I was becoming aware of is that people created an identity of me that wasn't me. Mm. And I had a really interesting experience, probably a year before I wrote the book. And the, wrote, the book wasn't actually planned. It just sort of emerged out of me where somebody came to a talk. It was in Oxford. And this lady came up to me afterwards and said, I nearly didn't come to this conference because you were speaking at it because I've never really liked you. And I said, oh, my God, that's an interesting thing to say. And she said, well, I've, you know, I see you online and everything you do and everything. And um, I just didn't feel I'd resonate with you. But now I've heard you talk. I see you're just very human. And it was, you know, I've always been very determined not to create illusions of myself. But but social media can create illusions of you. Um, and I thought I don't really want to be thought of in the wrong vein anyway I, you know I'm who I am and one of my greatest when I look at points in my life when Hannah my daughter who's in 30 this year she heard me speak when she was about 14 and she said mum I sat there and it was like you were in the kitchen with me you're no different to when your mum at home and it was like yes that's who I want to be I don't so I think the book I wanted it to help people to feel more normal um, and to be the antidote really to how social media makes us feel and the conditions that it puts on us and the the way that we try and compare ourselves or we do compare ourselves with illusions and how we should be really happy just to forge our own way forward. I really like the way, Penny, that you talk about there's the, the image that others have of you and there's mm. the image that you want to project and and perception is their reality. Exactly. And so if you want to be master of that, or at least take control of it, you need to present it as a, the more fuller self that breaks through the, the ice or the, the, the mirage of perfection that, and, and of course, I, I suppose names are, are account. So if I were, you know, a foreigner and, and looking at you, Penny and say, oh, there's a power couple, look how pretty she is. And, and the OBE and, and all these kinds of things that, People will quickly say, well, the you know, power couple, it, it could be an association that means, oh, gosh, and you are, of course, a, cow, a couple that's powerful, yet that, that's not what you want to present. And that's but that yet can be the way people perceived you. It can. I think it can. It, it is. It's a, I think it's a danger for all of us, really, that um, in life with this online world that people can create perceptions and I think we have to be really aware of that and that's why 
you know, without leaping ahead. That's why I so believe in being part of communities rather than networks, because when you take time to be a citizen of a community, you're getting to know people more deeply. Um, and I think it is one of the danger of this. We're, you know, we're highly more, more connected now than ever before, but most people are lonelier. And I think this gap between our identity and our truth is where there sits so much pain and and actually who's it serving anyway and I, I never wanted to have that gap but also I never I never I'd hate to think that any of my stuff that I've done online has made somebody feel smaller or less important or less happy or whatever I would hate that and so I actually have moved so far away from social media um I mean, I loved social networking. That's what we began in 1998, this concept of networking socially. But social media, I think, is, you know, is dangerous in the wrong hands. And so I never thought it would be the case. But I do more of my connecting now on LinkedIn because there it's a safe space to just connect and hopefully know that that person is fairly um, honest or not honest. That's not the right word. They are who they say they are. You know, I don't need to get fake identities there um and then you get, le you get less full truths <laughs> until you engage with people and peel back some of those onion layers and you can tell quite quickly whether people are willing to do that um yeah oh. so i had a very interesting conversation with the lead learning and head of learning and development in a very very large company one of the top five tech companies in the world i won't say anything more than that and, and she she was she was only this morning, actually, and she said that there's this huge issue of covering. And I said, what's covering? I thought it was something that horses did. Um, you know, I thought that's how you, they mated. Anyway, she said it's this concept of everybody wearing a mask and not showing their real self. And they're trying to shift the culture of the organisation and trying to get people to take their masks off. And I think that's something that we all want now. Well, that, of course, I feel is a symptom of our times, if you will, this notion of the mask. I wanted to share with you a quick story and then get you to react. Throughout my entire career, when I was in corporate in any event, I rarely show anything negative in terms of emotions. I would show glee, happiness, high-fiving, but I rarely got irate and I certainly rarely showed sadness. Until one day when at a, a press launch, I broke down and cried. And yeah. it was the first time that had ever happened. And so, as you can imagine, being brought up in England, stiff upper lip, I was, you know, as embarrassed as they could get. And I felt that, you know, this is, oh, I just screwed the whole thing up. And, and at the end, the conclusion was I realized that they didn't think any less of me. They connected more into me. And so that's obvious to you, Penny. Mm -hmm. The point is that I think that this is a uh, an observation or an experience that few men ever risk doing, more women are prone to. And I think it's a force. Your thoughts? Yeah, um, so it's a very interesting thing, this, because, you know, you watch any of these shows, these talent shows and telly and everything, everybody, everybody loves the underdog, everybody wants to help. The undertop, the person's in pain, the person who's disadvantaged. And, you know, to a certain extent, and it's a big subject with the whole shift in equality and diversity and all of these issues, 
it can also leave behind some of the people who are just very hardworking, talented people, but they don't fit that thing. So I've seen a, when, when I used to, I've never shared online publicly uh, massive, massive challenges um, in terms of asking people for help. I've written it into content to try and create empathy and resonance to try and make people realize that I'm not coming from an academic viewpoint. I'm coming from my own experience and, and maybe wisdom through the years. But what I have seen is um, this whole Brenny Brown, you know, um, vulnerability movement is some people are using it as a marketing technique rather than it being authentic which okay. is really really interesting to see um so so back to your question about so i i my experience is that women and men can both be extremely closed and fearful of sharing their vulnerabilities um i wouldn't necessarily say i've noticed it through the genders um i just think that people are often fearful of it because they fear that people are going to exploit it. Um, and I, therefore, I think there is a, you have to be careful about your vulnerability in a way. You breaking down at a media conference is, is adorable um, because obviously it showed that you're either overwhelmed or, uh, you know, something went wrong and it meant so much to you. So um, I think that's different. And I think the use of vulnerability, you have to be cautious with it. I remember on Academy, which is the social network we started, um, a lady put up, a, you know, we had 650,000 members that could see the blog posts. And a lady put up something about the fact that she was being abused by her husband. And um, the, the, the overwhelming amount of, you know, sadness that went towards her about it but there was also a very dangerous amount of um, amateur psychology going on as well and I think when we show our vulnerability we have to be cautious of that but also when we show our vulnerability know that we're open to that unsolicited advice that people might give and I think when we I always say if somebody shows vulnerability are you in a space to actually have some advice around this because most people flood in with it and actually that can be really patronizing or the person's just too overwhelmed to take it on anyway or you can get trolled or you get trolled yeah and then the question is you know like or too much information and what what message do you want to send out there what are you trying to do and I certainly in my case in that particular instance I wasn't doing anything uh that didn't come naturally if you will it was yeah, it was exactly. beyond me it was beyond me to, to to manufacture that but so you were also in a safe community you weren't you weren't out there in the big wide world well, I think the shift that i'm seeing is people now wanting smaller intimate groups where they can feel that psychological safety to share a piece of vulnerability well, and if, know that their you, credibility isn't being affected by that vulnerability yeah it was a safer space uh, with a with a <laughs> with a qualification that these were all the major media of britain <laughs> Uh, so I can't say it was that small a space, but none and no one reported on that piece. The the um the the point one of the things that in, in reading your 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 book I really thought about a lot was the difference and, and something I, I would argue isn't quite as obvious is that it's really only for entrepreneurs or not because I come this from a corporate standpoint 
And, and a lot of your viewpoint is really as an entrepreneur or a small business owner, the idea of business as personal when you're working for General Electric or Barclays Bank, it seems like a longer, a longer path or a more less obvious path than when it's your own business or you as an entrepreneur, because it is your business and, and your name might be on the, on the, on the banner. However, at Barclays Bank, it's definitely not Minter Dial Corporation. Uh, you know, so how, how does, what's your narrative with regard to business is personal and you're working in a corporation? So I totally get what you said. And actually when I was writing this, I had to think about who would, who am I talking to here that I feel I have the most empathy with. And so of course I haven't worked in a large organization since I was 28. Um, so which wasn't that long ago penny please no of course not so i um however i have supported and helped a number of people who are in organizations um the reason i say business is personal is this concept it's the juxtaposition of somebody saying minter it's it's not personal it's just business right you're screwed you're terrible don't take well, it personally. And, and if somebody says that to you, you know you're really screwed, which is a very polite way of saying what I might have said. Because it's like saying, I don't mean to be a bitch, but, or, you know, it's, I'm about to be, right? So if we are asked to be culturally now very passionate and purposeful and, and have a sense of belonging in an organisation, be loyal to it and everything, and we're expected to have all these emotional intelligence um quotients to to help our things move ahead how can we switch it on and switch it off and and that's almost robotic to say right turn it on now because it's required turn it off and where i come from that business is personal is i discovered as i write in there all my um emotional flaws and i don't say that in a victim way but the challenges about myself that meant business was harder for me the course that I took than it than it would have been for somebody else and those were around lack of boundaries beliefs around unconditional love to everyone no matter how they ever treat you um self-worth issues because I'd been so deeply broken down by adversity um total abuse of myself around um my expectations of myself as some people call it you know the uh, the underconfident overachiever who gets dumped with everything um, and also the ability to design the life that's right for me and that's where it's personal and when I wrote this in 2018 it's when I was coming off a um, what's 20 year conveyor belt so I got on this conveyor belt age 33 called academy which when I started the concept of us social networking as business people, there was no LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook or anything. I just thought, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a, I, I care deeply about people having a sense of belonging. I want people to know they matter. Um, there was nothing on, there was no tools online that could help people who were business owners that were going to be working at home on their dot coms. And I wanted to help them. I wasn't planning to become this sort of globally recognized in my sector person that had built the world's first social network and travel around the world and sit in front of financial institutions and pitch to them. And 
the career that I went on, which has immediately made me have an identity that wasn't really my truth because that was never my intention to be that person. You, you didn't create but, that conveyor belt. The conveyor belt is a societal one that sort of imposed it, this is the track. Well, it was because we created something that was very explosive. I mean, if we can now take our heads back, imagine no LinkedIn, imagine no Twitter, imagine no Facebook, imagine no Instagram, no Snapchat, no anything. Online, there were Yahoo groups, and they were mostly used by, I use the Geeks. term really, beautifully i use it beautifully because my husband's half geek i could say half geek half human um they were used by geeks so the the run of the mill person there was no way to connect online and we created it this was a year before friends reunited started which some of us will know um so suddenly you know we started this we poured 250,000 pounds of investment into it because we needed to create the code and get it known and suddenly people are pouring in and um, the media are asking me about it. And I was still breastfeeding my third child. And that's where my heart was, really. I was expecting to sit on at home in the evening when the, the other two were asleep and TJ was on my lap, answering a few messages and connecting some people. So this conveyor belt. Now, what happened to me and Thomas, because Thomas then came into the business because we were due to float on the stock market and they wanted Thomas as well. Um, what happened to me was I suddenly went into risking everything and safety and security is very important to me. Financial safety and security, very, very important to me. Risking everything, having expectations of me and finding that I was arranging for somebody else to pick my kids up from school because I had this commitment to, uh, to talk to a financial PR firm in the city or whatever. But then I became obligated to this machine and the beautiful people inside it. And so my priorities got completely confused. And I think this is the thing about going back to your question about, is this the same in corporate land as entrepreneur land? Totally the same. Because sometimes we don't properly sit back and design the right life for ourselves in business. And we have to know what feels right. And it took sort of a really scary experience in 2018 for me to go whole way, 20 years on this conveyor belt, who is this person? And jump off it. And then think, well, it's personal to me how I am and what I want. And I'm not going to keep looking at other people online and realize that six years ago, we lost this fantastic business we created and I lost my identity and try and find it again. I didn't need to find it again. I just needed to look at where my greatest gifts were that I could give to a few people. And that's basically going back to that. So I've now created community just for 100 business experts, which actually what I thought Academy was going to be back in 1998. But you're not breastfeeding anymore. Um, no, not, not my babies. Um, so the, the challenge, I suppose, for, for people listening to this, if they're working in big business, is typically why well, I don't have control on these things. Mm. Not that you have total control when you're an entrepreneur. That's, you know, it's a nice idea, but it's not easy because you do get shareholders and other owners and so on. Yeah. But you're working in a big business and and you talked about putting on a mask. And I think that that notion is, is so overridingly true for entrepreneurs, yeah. but it's even more imposed when you're a cog in a large wheel. When you walk in the door, well, this is how we operate. You wear this type of tie, this type of mask, 
and this is how we go. And when you're younger, it feels for me that you, you feel like that's an imposition you need to do in order to survive, if not to succeed. But the big thing is getting to know who the heck you are. So I know you might feel in a large company that you're not in control. Um, and I appreciate that. I do completely appreciate that. But one thing we can't let go of is being in control of ourselves. So when I was going through this sort of metamorphosis before I knew I needed it, and I was building a digital youth academy, this business that brought the digital apprenticeship to market, I had some investors that really were very quite toxic towards me. She, this lady, a super lady, but she had um, sold her business. She'd never been an investor before. She sold it, got 22 million pounds and decided I'd be one of the investors. And instead of her investing and letting me get on with it, she basically became my boss. And it wasn't the world that I was willing to go into and be judged by. A very different, a different experience. Anyway, the, one of my uh, colleagues in it, even though I was the founder of it and the chief um, shareholder, he was the operations director, Russell. He said to me one day, Penny, I watched a, and he knew I was getting un, un, more and more unhappy. And, and I'm naturally quite a happy person. And we were in a car and he said to me, he'd watched a documentary and they were, it was about happiness across the world. Lots of different government bodies had got involved in researching it. And they'd slimmed it down to happiness is made up of 50% your constitution. Are you a happy person? And if you're not a happy person, then really you need to delve into that and discover what is causing that unhappiness. Um, so what your constitution, um, whether you're, I suppose, a half full, half, half empty type person. 10% was the achievement of the things you want out of life. And thankfully, we're never satisfied. That's why we constantly progress. That's why we're not animals anymore and we're living the ways that we used to because we're never satisfied and that's fine. We can all cope with that 10%. 40% was the sense of control over the life that we are leading. Have you ever found yourself scrolling through financial news and wondering, how does any of this affect me? How can I read a major headline and truly understand what impact that has on not only my portfolio, but my life? Well, our goal on the podcast Inside the Street, hosted by Wall Street analyst Sela Shifre Partners, is to provide public investors and young professionals with a deeper understanding of the mechanics that drive those major headlines. And what better way to dive into these mechanics and hosting Wall Street analysts themselves to discuss the newest trends in finance firsthand? Well, on our show, we bring you real perspectives from the front line. Hearing these analysts give commentary has made our listeners much more well-versed on the financial markets. This approach to discussion allows our listeners to engage in conversation with much more educated opinions and predictions. So be sure to check out our show, Inside the Street, wherever you find your podcasts. So. When he said that to me, that's when I thought, right, at the very most, I'm 60% happy because I know I have no control. So I had to then look into myself and think, well, how have I let this happen? And I realized that I was quite a passive. I, mean, I am naturally unassertive, quite passive person. As I said, right at the top of this show, I didn't have the right boundaries. I was so worn down, and I suppose you'd call burnt out, that. Um, I couldn't go into a meeting and challenge this person. So she started to look like a bully to me. But then I discovered I was actually interpreting anybody with an opinion that wasn't mine as a bully. 
I had lost, I had just lost the ability to be an adult, adult, have adult, adult conversation. Um, and in, if people know about transactional analysis, I'd almost gone to the critical parent, uh, adapted child type situation. And I was going into it in many ways because I was just exhausted. And this wasn't just my business challenges. There were a lot of challenges happening at home with that were really demanding on my time with my mum with dementia, my sister lost her daughter, my brother died, Hannah, our daughter, got abducted by three men and raped by one of them. So there was huge amounts of challenges. I was worn down. So what I discovered in that process uh, was that, first of all, I, I will never be a victim of something. I don't think that is my mentality. And the first thing I said to Thomas on our first date when I was 24, Thomas, who I married, was nobody's going to make me happy. It's my job to make myself happy. And it's because my mum once said to me when I was about 15, oh, I never go to the theatre. Your dad never takes me. And I remember thinking, holy crap, that's not going to happen to me. Um, down, why, why would she be waiting for somebody else to give her joy? So um, I realised that, OK, I'm not managing this and it must be annoying for a lot of people around me and I need to step off it. And what I discovered when I stepped off it and we exited that business and I stepped off it was that I had a lot of issues that I probably had had from teenage years that I had brought into the business world. And whilst I didn't want to lose who I was and the emotional penny, I had to accept the fact that I had some flaws and that I had to do some personal development. And I think anybody can do that in a business world. No matter how much a corporate is controlling, we, it starts with self-awareness, it starts with going through some personal development, and then, it's, and then it continues into how do you can maintain your mental fitness? Because just like our physical fitness, like I don't expect anybody else to make sure that I don't put on three stone in weight. Um, I, you, I make sure I look after what I eat and I make sure I exercise. At the moment, I've got a broken knee, so I'm swimming instead. I, I, will, I don't expect anybody else to help me with that. And it's the same for my mental fitness. I'm not going to blame anyone for the decisions that I make that give me overwhelm or anxiety or whatever. I have to learn to be mentally fit. And so this mental health agenda that's going on, I feel that there's a big shift needing to happen. Whereas rather than it be this, the company is making me mentally unhealthy, it has to be how, what am I doing to become mentally fit? And that might, you know, that will be a journey. And that is the journey that I share. The um, silly thought is that's when the penny dropped. <laughs> um, yeah, right. So, but uh, the, the feeling for me, and you said a couple of things that really resonate with what I'm writing on, which is this gap between what we're projecting and the reality of who we are, mm -hmm. the mask that we project and the reality that we have suffered, we, we have sufferances, we have pain, we have scars. And, and the idea of saying, well, I have this illness that's in this great book that describes my illness, and therefore I take this pill. And, and so it's not me, it's this illness I have. And I'm not discounting all illnesses, but the, no. the challenge we have today is we seem to try to find a, a label, put the label up there, and it's not me, it's the label, and then give me a, a blue pill and I'll fix it. As no. opposed to what you're doing, which is from within. 
Yeah, I think it is not um, delegating responsibility for ourselves. And I won't, don't want to delegate it to a pill. Um, I don't want to delegate it to someone else. I still don't make, expect Thomas to make me happy. I'll be bloody cross with him. He made me unhappy. But, <laughs> I, but I, don't expect, you know, I don't expect it. And, you know, just today, so at the moment, TJ, who's our son, who's a mental well-being, he's absolutely brilliant. He did um, his master's in psychology and performance, and he works with some of our clients. I went downstairs. And I said, TJ, I am feeling overwhelmed. And he said, well, what, what is it then? I don't, I don't know. I'm just feeling so overwhelmed. And he said, well, how are you managing? How are you structuring yourself? And he came up and he spent half an hour with me and he set me up on Notion. And he said, right, mum, you've got to start having a proper system for all the stuff that's coming at you. So as soon as I can feel the trigger, I jump on it straight away. I don't accept, I don't accept that I have to feel anxious or overwhelmed or, and I, you know, there are, there's a raft of things that I am frustrated by in my life, particularly where I am at this age, um, because of the financial damage that we created through academy to ourselves um through through just believing in it for too long 14 years we propped it up for five years longer than we should have done there's consequences of that and so I'm not saying that my life is by any way perfect um but it's only me that can change it and I have to constantly personally develop and learn techniques and adapt to a world that is fast changing you know it's and, and technology has put so much pressure on us all, uh, the expectations of it, the desires of it, that we have to constantly learn how to deal with, with it. And so I'm just constantly learning how to cope with the world around me and keeping myself mentally fit. And I think we all have to do that. The passage you talk about, the way the Japanese will repair a broken vase yeah. with gold, this kintsugi. Uh, yeah. concept i feel like that really is the nuts and bolts of it that it's i have a scar i have mm -hmm. a pain i have an issue i'm broken but the way you deal with it with gold inlay or not is actually what life is about yeah i think that's i love the fact that you've brought that up because it's very clever and, and there was that i saw kinsagi it was on instagram when i was going through my sort of broken period and I saw that and I also saw a Lao Tzu quote that said in order to be whole first allow yourself to break and those two things really resonate and it's like anything somebody might be listening to this and that means something to them many people might listen to this and say what are they talking about because it's either going to resonate or it's not and I I think the thing is the concept of Lao Tzu saying to allow to to be whole first allow yourself to break really resonated from with it because i had held on to the fear of breaking yeah the scaffolding was i can't take down the scaffolding no 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 this is where yeah. we are this is how there we're building too, this is what yeah. we decided there were too many consequences of it you know I, I, I had too many reasons to not do it um but that almost gave me permission because i thought well actually i do want to be whole and it's going to be better for everybody that I love if I am. Um, and that includes all my clients because I love them very much. Um, and then the Kinsagi one of, you know, and once you do break, you're going to be stronger. 
and those two things together are so such powerful words if they resonate with you at the time because I am definitely at 58 just through self-awareness which I had to break to be self-aware and learn those things I'm definitely a more whole person um, than I have ever been because I'm not trying to make up for my flaws I'm not trying to keep putting a broken thing back together myself it's happened now and yeah it's got all the the, the gold or the whatever metal it is that, that put it back together um and I can forgive myself for that and also realize that I'm not going to change my personality but there are parts of my character that I can develop and my personality is one to be highly emotional very open I've always been very open very loving very driven from the heart these are all my personality traits but my character had some flaws that were that were maddening and were damaging to me but also maddening for other people you write at one point about how well if if i if i had a penny for every uh, or probably a dollar i should say mm -hmm. uh, for every time someone said you ought to live in america considering how open you are um <laughs> i i thought that you know and you said what does that actually reflect back on the stiff upper lipness of of us yeah. in britain and, and and of course in the end of the day there's openness and then there's sometimes too much openness and and you can create vulnerability or exposure through that but knowing yeah I, I just wanted to go back just to this thing you said about the happiness 10 percent yeah. is achieving the things you want i think that part of the problem is that we don't know what we want. And, and so we run after things with a disposition of happiness or not, but without real knowledge of yourself, it becomes, I feel very difficult to get success because that 10% for me is how you define success. And that's a piece in your book I thought was really interesting. How does one, how do you advise people, Penny, to to define their success because you, you do it in a really great way for you what is what is the road what advice do you have somebody who says well i i don't really know what i want or i don't know what is success for me so um i don't i really don't know what words are going to come out of my mouth now okay well good let it be i'm just, channeling. It I'm just yeah. channeling this the reason that i had to redefine success is that I had begun to believe, and it's good for you to ask me these questions because I get it. I get back on this train of thought. I'm in it at the moment, so it's great that you're you're giving me therapy here. Well done, Minta, because I get into hopefully, it. Hopefully, TJ approves. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I've got to go all the way back to one of my major values are being feeling safe. I, I, I imagine most people want to feel safe, right? And if I think about my life, I am very safe in love. Thomas is a really great man in my life and um, I'm very lucky and I'm very secure in my love with my children. Um, but financially, I haven't feel safe. I haven't felt safe since 2001. Uh, so that's 21 years. So when I realized that and thought, how am I going to how am I going to do change that? And, and that was because we went on this huge entrepreneurial path, unexpected, as we've already talked about, and um, sacrificed huge amounts, um, having had a very good standard of living before that. You know, we were the, 
the complete tossers, age 32, with big house and the lovely two cars and three kids at private school type people. Flying then, around the world. Yeah. Then And so anybody looking on, they had every right to think, what a couple of tossers. Um, um, and then, you know, then we threw it all up in the air. Um, so I had to redefine, actually, what are my values as a person? And therefore, how would I define whether or not I am successful or not? And we can't take every element of success in our lives. I don't think, you know, you can't, if you wrote down your top 10 values, could you really say you'd achieve 10 out of 10 on all of them? So, you know, when I wrote that down, what would I sacrifice in order to have that? So if I was a multimillionaire with security of a home that wasn't going to be taken away from me, what might I've had to, what would I have to sacrifice if that, to, in order to achieve that and one thing I know from us personally is I would have had to have sacrificed my time with my kids because in order to have probably worked our way through the amount of need to be done with the academy I would have had to be globally running around the world as well as Thomas and I would I wouldn't have had to been able to be the mother that I wanted to be um, I chose not to be the, the CEO of the business because I didn't feel that it was I was operationally there going to be there enough. So somebody else did. But, you know, maybe if I'd been the CEO, it would have been different. So I had to look at the definition of success is actually I put number one, my family. And that is my number one value. And therefore, surely I am therefore successful. And so defining helping someone else define their success is helping them to be pretty um what's the word sort of very open with themselves and pretty clear about what really matters in their life and what you need to sacrifice so another thing in my life is i don't have that many bosom buddies of girlfriends because during the years that you make them when your children are little and you're standing at the school gate and then you go off and have a cup of coffee with each other and you might arrange a tennis match. And this is living in Surrey where I live. I was the one chucking them out the door of the car and then parking at a train station and zooming to a train and then coming back so that I could pick them up from school in time, but never saying, oh yeah, I can go out to a book club or yeah, I'll go to a theater with you. Because the evenings I was pretty knackered, plus I was doing homework and, and plus I would be working in the evenings. And then so I sacrificed that. And at the weekends, the greatest joy we had was Saturday evening getting a takeaway and watching X Factor with the kids, not running a dinner party for, for, for friends. So, you know, I know loneliness and this is why I want to build community for people, because I know what it feels to be lonely and not matter to people and I was very lonely and I didn't matter to my mother peer group and that is very sad I've got some really close girlfriends I've known since before I met Thomas a couple of really close girlfriends but that really is sad and I don't know where I'll ever find that community now um, but I sacrificed that again in order to achieve the beautiful relationship that I have with my kids so again, yes, I could get hung up all the time on, on the fact that I, you know, haven't got, you know, if I decided I needed to go and cry on someone's shoulder, you know, when my dad died in January, there wasn't a single person within 10 miles of where I live that I could go to. 
Um, having Notwithstanding lived, the, the having the lived here for social 32 distancing. years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, this was just this January, so I could have. Yeah. So it's a long it's a long answer, but I'm what I'm trying to do is explain that we get a perception that some people have got it all. But, you know, I, I do know the loneliness of not having that bosom buddy next door that I could go and have a cup of tea with and cry with. Uh, you know, uh, so and, you know, I deeply know loneliness for other reasons as well, which is, again, why I feel there are so many people who are lonely, because probably all the ladies that see me in shopping in Waitrose or grabbing a takeaway in Starbucks and fun probably think that you know she's got it all you know look at her she's got her OBE it was in the Farnham Herald um they wouldn't know that they wouldn't know there's this perception they wouldn't know that you know that that I'm lonely Um, you talk you talked a lot about um the ability or the yeah the ability to to be alone but and and yet not feel lonely yeah and and how you basically it seems between E Academy and the different things you've done, and especially with the BP 100, it's about filling that gap in your life somehow. You like like my my daughter, she's going to be studying psychology, and and uh, they always say that psychologists study psychology starting off with themselves. <laughs> and I suppose there's always an interesting retrofit, or even if you're smarter a pre-understanding of why you're doing what you're doing. And if you can get comfortable with that, then it just, it becomes you entirely. It does, and it does fulfill you because whatever you, if you can save someone from the pain that you've experienced, it's very, very fulfilling. And in organizations, especially through COVID, leaders have found it very hard to create that sense of belonging within their teams. And I think this is opening up for many people and hopefully for myself, an opportunity to help them build community and find the culture within an organization that gives that sense of belonging. And a sense of belonging isn't just the pride in the logo and the products. A sense of belonging is much deeper than that. You have to create that emotional link and you can't create that emotional link without the leader being willing to be that servant leader really who is willing to say i also have challenges and um and it and people will think well that surely that's placing everybody into a position of vulnerability well i think we're more vulnerable being disconnected than we are than if we decided to connect emotionally oh god yes and in your book and i as one other piece that i really liked you talked about the four ways to belong and you know how do you build community and the I, the servant leader obviously who yeah. like you are where you show vulnerability is is a portion of that sharing of scar tissue and and then you you relate to one another everybody behind closed doors you you're real and, and i just wanted to finish with, with one final thought which is and i find it's another problem we have today is that we we have this total connection with everybody we're disconnected lonely and when you do belong, you can't belong to everybody and everything. So there's yeah. an element of exclusion in that, which I feel f- runs in the face of this trend for inclusion. And I think there's a risk that we we start thinking that we need to belong with everybody, be nice with all people all the time, everywhere. 
if you will, or nice or, or belong. Yeah. And yet belonging also means this is my home and that is not my home. Mm. Yeah. I, yeah. I think how do we create the absolute perfect world? I, I, I don't know, but I, and I think you're right. You've got to be very careful of exclusion. Uh, I was talking to this large organization this morning and they said, they've got a community and they want 6,000 people to be inside this community. There, you, can't, you can't possibly create that sense of cohesion with 6,000 people. I mean, we've now got out of the 100 members that we, what we call citizens, that we want to bring into BIP 100, we've got 73. And even now when I onboard and I put a lot of time into onboarding someone into it and all the methodologies that we have for them to connect, it still takes time and a lot of love to get someone to feel part of that. And that's only going into community of 73 people. So it, 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 it's, you have to start thinking smaller, I think, to really build that sense of belonging and ensure you don't have exclusion. Um, otherwise, you know, you'd be like going into a town of 6,000 people and standing up with a billboard in front of you really and saying, hey, this is me and look at my problems or this is what help I need. Um, it, sounds like, it sounds like a business model approach. Like, well, if I have 6,000 people that pay 23 pounds a month, that will make my ability to have a house or something like that. I don't know. I, know. I mean, this is, I think this is the th thing that really fears me because I remember when social networking became social media and it was a dark time oh. right because we went from connecting and talking to broadcast and i think there's a real danger that people are starting to talk about networks and calling them community and networks are different to communities you you know there is a skill in being a citizen of a community there's a responsibility of being a citizen of a community it's about the the shared contribution um, and I'm really hoping that I don't see the term community being overused or misused. Um, and really going back to the servant leadership and the leader thing is servant leadership, which fortunately for me, this lady who knows me really well that ran contacts me from um, this large tech company. I said to her, I've got all these books I've got from good to great and servant leadership and Oh my god i've got all these classic books and i said i don't read but i feel so bad and she said you don't need to read because this is your natural flow this, this is so don't she said don't read them penny but i sort of feel like i need to sort of become a bit of an academic on it but the reality is that if you're truly a servant leader which there will be millions of them around the world and in organizations if you can bring them forward is they are not threatened at all by anybody else's brilliance because what they want to do is shine the shine the light on their brilliance and so and as soon as you do that um you make people's self-esteem so strong that they're therefore not scared to then show a chink so you can't force vulnerability without the right culture of leadership i suppose that's what i'm trying to say Culture destroys uh, strategy. <laughs> um, the last uh, question I have for you, um, purpose. You mentioned it before, 
connecting hearts. And I loved how you came up with that and with your person who helped you and those two words so quickly, by the way, it seemed in three hours. And it very much links into who you are and, and your core values. Something that I think was interesting in the way you express it is within business. And, and it felt for me that that was, and I don't mean to be offensive, but not the right one. For me, it's connecting hearts, period. Right. That it, and I, I, I strive for a purpose that is both the person in the shower, uh, brushing teeth at home, dealing with kitchen chores, talking to a cashier, and 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 the, the idea for you, for me is that you're connecting hearts in all of those categories, mm-hmm. rather than just in business. And I wanted you to react to that. It's very a very fair thing to say. I suppose where I direct my attention, it's in business. When I'm at home, or I don't, I'm, it's just natural to. I mean, fortunately, our three kids and all the cousins were all very close and we vibrate on very similar frequency around around love and support um i suppose i feel if it's not too crash crass i feel it's more of a calling for me to do it in business because it's so it does it so rarely exists that's fine i've noticed this when i was 19 and i was waiting to go into psychology at university and i went and worked for a, an it company when i was 19 in telesales when I walked into that company that was about 50 staff at that time, it grew a lot. Um, I didn't realize that it was going to be any different to my family. I had no preconceived ideas that business should be any different to my life at home. So I was, you know, I used to talk terms of endearment. I used to cuddle my first client. I remember when I had to go out and meet a, a computer dealer down in Southampton I walked in, I didn't shake his hand and I gave him a hug. And I'm talking about in 1983, didn't do things like that. And I just, I've always felt that relationships in business should be as important as my relationships in my non-business life. Um, yeah, and, and uh, not giving a dirty word to it, but it's personal. Yeah, it's and, very and, personal. And yeah. fortunately, that's not been knocked out of me. That's um, right. And I feel that's what we need now. We need love in business and, and leaders need to feel that that's strengthening, not weakening their organizations. Yeah. And I, I truly believe, uh, I truly believe that. And, and you mentioned, you know, where we talked about the openness in the United States when I ran my company, uh, which is a corporation, uh, a large corporation at that, we made hugging a part of it. Yeah, we're, um, talking about that in the 1990s where actually the company had that before I came along but even in the 1990s when I was running it and into the 2000s we allowed for hugging and it by the way it was a seven second hug it wasn't just a tap tap as so many people oh, might do it was you know bosom to bosom and uh yeah maybe we're, we're talking world. about absolute basic human needs the basic needs that we have is affection and closeness and kindness. It's, it's so basic. It's not the world of business, as you say, and I think that was a really interesting clarification for me, Penny uh, would take that on board. Penny, thank you so much for coming on 
and 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 sharing with us your story, your ideas and advice, and and being very open in the way you talk about it. How can anybody, um, if you want, be follow you, contact you, and of course get your book, Business as Personal. Oh, well, that's very kind. Well, the book is um, well, it's on Amazon, but it's also it's available as a Audible, uh, even on Spotify. So that's who 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 is the uh, speaker who narrates? I am. There you go. I went into a studio with a professional sound engineer who put me through hell. Indeed. Uh, But I went in about, I think it was about nine visits to it over 22 hours to get it right. So, um, so that's lovely. Um, That's my book. Um, You can reach me on LinkedIn, but also my email is penny at pennypower.co.uk. And if anybody is genuinely interested in, connecting please tell me that you've connected as a result of me being on Minta's show though um because i'd love to tell Minta that we've connected beautiful i put all that in the show notes and it uh, now i just have to my my audience who's been listening thank you penny <laughs> thank you penny that was oh, lovely having i loved it thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter dialogue podcast if you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash interdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on interdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger. Convinced man practicing my lines. I'm a convinced.
woman I'm a convinced man Put me to the test I'm a convinced man best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.